Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for hanging with us. Special counsel Robert Hur's report about his investigation into President Joe Biden's handling of sensitive documents was released yesterday and at more than 300 pages, is does it does not recommend charging the president with a crime. The president responded forcefully in a rare press conference last night. I've seen the headlines since the report was released about my willful retention of documents. This, these assertions are not only misleading, they're just plain wrong. Special counsel Her, a former U.S. attorney in Maryland appointed by President Trump, included what the president and many Democrats are calling gratuitous characterizations, that Mr. Biden is, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, and that he has diminished faculties in advancing age. So Biden is legally exonerated, but politically damaged. Yesterday was a historic day at the Supreme Court. The justices heard oral arguments broadcast live here on WIPR in the Colorado case about whether or not Donald Trump should be disqualified from appearing on the ballot there because he engaged in insurrection in violation of the 14th Amendment. We await the justices' opinions in that matter and in the matter of presidential immunity from prosecution. It's the Midday News Wrap. Chaos continues to ensue in the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives, giving grave concerns for the prospects for Ukraine in the war against Russia, support for Israel and aid to Gazans, and any chance that the crisis at the southern border will end. Having demanded a deal on border security, Republicans abandoned it at the behest of Donald Trump and having promised to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, they fell one vote short, and that was just Tuesday. Luke Broadwater covers Congress for the New York Times, and he joins us on Zoom. Luke, how you doing? Hey, good afternoon. So uh, we have some breaking news to talk about first, and that is there are reports uh, just in the last half hour or so that Larry Hogan, former governor of Maryland, uh, has decided to run for Senate. What have you heard about that? Yeah, that's confirmed. He has uh, announced now that he, uh, former uh, Maryland governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, will be running for uh, the open Senate seat this year. That certainly um, makes this much more of a competitive election than most people thought it might be. Uh, this was considered to be a very safe seat for the Democrats. And, uh, you know, Larry Hogan's entrance, obviously, he's one statewide twice as a Republican makes this much, much more competitive. Yeah, when he uh, finished his second term and he was term limited, so he couldn't run for a third term as governor, he enjoyed some 65 percent approval rating among Democrats. Uh, so the two leading contenders on the Democratic side, David Trone and Angela also Brooks, Angela also Brooks, the uh, county executive in Prince George's County, David Trone, uh, congressman from the 6th District, uh, they are uh, going to have, uh, you know, I think a pretty tight battle against each other. And then uh, Larry Hogan, certainly now the presumptive nominee on the Republican side. There are seven other people who've registered with the Board of Elections to date, but none of them uh, are considered major candidates with statewide recognition. Do we have any any understanding as to why Mr. Hogan changed his mind? Because uh, he had been recruited heavily by Mitch McConnell and others uh, in previous years to run for Senate. He toyed with a presidential run, even as a, a third party candidate. Um, any, any notion as to why he's decided to, to, uh, to run for Senate now all of a sudden? 
Yeah, I haven't had the opportunity to speak with him directly, so I, I, I would, of course, put that question to him. Um, he, in the past, had been kind of down on the Senate. He, you know, he often described it as, you know, Congress is a place where nothing gets done and people argue and fight all day. Um, and I think he had much had hoped to catch on as a presidential candidate. But I guess now that that there was clearly no pickup there and, you know, the wider Republican Party wasn't interested in what he was selling, that maybe he thinks this is the, the best place for his his future in, in the Republican Party is to run and is to run for the Senate now. I, I will say Larry Hogan has never won in a presidential electorate. He's only won in the gubernatorial electorates in Maryland, which tend to favor the minority party uh, more so than the presidential uh, does when there's usually a bigger turnout, a lot more Democrats coming to the polls. So you, that that makes this a more difficult electorate than he's ever won in in the past. And, you know, but there's no incumbent. And, you know, both Angela Alserbrooks and David Trone are probably pretty strong Democrats. But without the power of incumbency, it, it does uh, it does give him a decent chance, I think. Yeah. So uh, certainly, as you say, it's a much more competitive race than uh, it perhaps could have been. So we will, of course, keep an eye on it. And uh, Mr. Hogan, like other major candidates for the Senate, will be invited to appear on our series here on Midday, Conversations with the Candidates. So, Luke, um, let's talk about what happened with this border deal that uh, uh, was negotiated by the Senate over a period of many, many months. Uh, and it was, at, you know, it was a precondition for uh, aid to Ukraine uh, by Republicans. And then they get a deal and all of a sudden they walked away from it. Um, what can you tell us about the reasons that happened and, uh, and, and the reaction uh, in these last few days uh, since it appears that bill is dead, right? Yes, that bill is dead. Um, there's, I guess, very much a feeling of whiplash <laughs> if you watch these negotiations. I mean, for most of the year, let's let's take it back from the beginning. The, this all came about because Ukraine needs more money uh, to fight off the Republican invasion, and so the the, the Russian invasion. I'm sorry, <laughs> the Russian invasion. Yes, R, confusing my R words. Yeah. Um, so the. Um, uh, every six months or a year, uh, the United States Congress greenlights more money to help Ukraine send tanks and 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 uh, and, and you know missiles and the like. And um, but this time, Republicans said uh, rather than just send more money to Ukraine, we have to secure our own borders rather than just secure the Ukrainian border. And they entered into months and months of negotiations. And with a you know a Republican, Democrat, and Independent hammering it out, and every step of the way, Republicans supported this. They demanded it. Democrats were going along begrudgingly. They Democrats gave Republicans all sorts of things they demanded, including uh, this bill would have had an immediate shutdown of the border the very first day it was implemented. The border would have been shut down, and um, but at the final stage once the deal was about to be announced uh both uh uh president uh former president trump and speaker of the house mike johnson said they were no longer in favor of this it, uh, president trump former president trump made it pretty clear that he preferred to run on the issue of of immigration of the border rather than back this deal they came up with all sorts of problems in the deal that they thought 
it was too weak. Um, and so at the end, pretty much every Republican minus a few backed away from it. And even the, you know, the author of the deal, uh, uh, James Langford, the senator from Oklahoma, um, was sort of left, you know, <laughs> this lone man with everyone criticizing him and bashing him. And, you know, he had just been doing what the party had wanted all along. So it was very much a sense of whiplash. And, you know, uh, Kristen Sinema, the independent senator from Arizona who had helped negotiate it, said she felt that she had sort of been misled by the Republicans, that they had they had loved the issue of demanding a border deal. But when it came time to actually accept it, they preferred to have the issue rather than rather than the deal. Luke Broadwater covers Congress for The New York Times. Our number here on Midday, it's the Midday News Wrap, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. If you have a question or comment about uh, the border deal or other goings-on in Congress. And uh, Senator Langford, you mentioned him. Luke, uh, I guess there was a talk show host or something that said, uh, if you don't back down from this bill, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. So they really, they came out uh, with guns ablazing here uh, in this particular fight. And it seems like the Republicans capitulated uh, almost immediately. It didn't take very long in this particular uh, fight, did it? Yeah, Langford has been pretty pretty roundly demonized, and he started telling us in the media about the kind of threats he was getting. He didn't name that, that right-wing, um, I guess, radio show host or talk show host. He didn't make it clear who that was. Uh, but that that person told him he said they would destroy him if he was to go forward with this to keep pushing forward with this deal. And I, I would note that this was a much, much more conservative package than anything that has been agreed to in the past. Normally, when there's a border deal or an immigration deal, Republicans get some border security measures and Democrats get something for them. Like, for instance, a pathway to citizenship for the dreamers. Nothing like that was in this bill. There was nothing for the Democrats along the lines of immigration. The only thing supposedly for the Democrats was helping to fight off the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, So uh, this, again, this was a a much more conservative deal than anything that's been negotiated over the past 10 years. But uh, ultimately, it is it is dead. And um, now Democrats are trying to push forward with the Ukraine money and also money for Israel and Taiwan in a separate package without any border provisions. And they're expected to work through the weekend on that and probably put that up for a vote on Tuesday. And uh, is there, uh, are, are there stark differences and, you know, major uh, chasm between the House bill on the border and the Senate uh, bipartisan uh, proposal that was worked out over these many months. I mean, uh, Johnson eventually uh, said that the the Senate version was dead on arrival in the House, uh, but the House itself has a border bill. Um, can you outline for us what the big differences are between the two? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the so. The House voted through a bill that was with only Republican votes, right? It was not intended to ever pass the Senate. Uh, there was, um, you know, it, it was basically all the Trump era policies uh, in one bill. It was remain, remain in Mexico was in there, money for the border wall, um, things like that, things that Democrats don't want and would never vote for. Um, so but by definition, the Senate bill was less conservative or less right-wing than the house bill but it was still the most 
conservative bill that Democrats have ever agreed to, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, you, you know, you, when you have a president that's a Democrat, when you have the Senate that's controlled by Democrats, Republicans only control one one branch of one, uh, you know, one chamber of one branch of government. And so they don't get to dictate the policy to everybody. And so they, you know, Langford felt that he had um, brought Democrats a long way to the right with his bill as pretty much as far as they could ever be brought. But, um, you know, Speaker Johnson said that wasn't far enough, that it had to be everything the Republicans wanted uh, with no with no compromise. And it wasn't just Republicans who voted to advance uh, this uh, proposal from the Senate. I mean, there were four Democrats, uh, Alex Padilla of California, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, and both the senators from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey. They voted against it, as did Bernie Sanders. He's an independent of course, in Vermont. So uh, are the Democrats going to you know, have to share any of the responsibility for uh, after all that work uh, coming up empty handed? Well, I think that shows you how conservative the bill was. I mean, there were Democrats who said this goes way too far. I mean, it literally the first day it would have been in effect, there would have been nobody who could have applied for asylum the next day. So you could have come up from a country and latin america with you know chased by the gangs or something and they would have turned you away immediately nope sorry you can't you our laws don't our, our laws are shut down today we don't take people seeking asylum today and it would have stayed that way for weeks until the numbers went way down and they could start processing those cases again but um so and and you know padilla and sanders and others felt that was inhumane that that wasn't Ameri what america stands for and um you know, they felt that this bill had given way too much to Republicans. So, you know, um, those that's those are the tensions in Congress. You have all different political views and different ideologies. And if you give too much to the Republicans, well, you're going to you're going to lose some of the votes from the Democrats. And, uh, you know, of course, obviously, Democrats are going to make a big deal of this, uh, saying that the Republicans, you know, demanded something and they're not really interested in fixing the problem at the border. So between now and November, uh, before the election, uh, the, the border situation uh, is not going to improve. But you, as you say, I mean, here we have President Joe Biden uh, uttering the words, I will shut down the border, uh, which is a, a big uh, change in his historic position. Um, there's another uh, piece of evidence of uh, Mr. Trump's complete stranglehold on the Republican Party. Rona McDaniel is leaving her post as head of the RNC. Uh, do you have any notion of who uh, Mr. Trump would rather see in that position? I guess he's looking for another election denier what, what what's he what's he up to with that? <laughs> you know i actually don't uh, you, uh that's a that's a little bit out of my purview uh, uh we have reporters who are well on top of the rnc and i i know he probably has somebody in mind i've actually heard some talk in the office about who he wants and that sort of thing but i uh you know, my, my specialty is more of Congress. Yeah, so. fair enough. And when it comes to Congress, there are 60-some-odd uh, members of Congress led by Matt Gates, uh, who won a resolution uh, declaring that uh, Donald Trump had nothing to do with the insurrection. Uh, what's the pur purpose of that, uh, and where do you think that's going to go? Right. Well, I'm sure you and your listeners have been following the Supreme Court case in Colorado, uh, uh, related to Colorado, where Trump has been removed from the ballot because of the 14th Amendment's provision against an insurrectionist holding office. So one thing the Supreme Court is 
wrestling with is who enforces that provision. Is it Congress? Is it the states? Is it secretaries of state? And there's some argument or belief that it is Congress who determines who's an insurrectionist. So this was an effort by Gates and others to say it is the view of Congress that he is not an insurrectionist and should be on the ballot. And so Gates has been going around gathering up signatures. He has, I believe, 65 signatures now uh, on his resolution stating that Trump is not an insurrectionist. If he gets enough and he's at work at it, walking around the halls, um, it, and he may well, all he needs is the majority of Republicans, I guess, in the House. And they're going, he could call for a vote where they would, you know, the House would declare that Donald Trump is not an insurrectionist and should be on, should be on the ballot. Let me ask you about the future of Speaker Mike Johnson. He had a huge loss uh, again the other day, uh, I guess Tuesday, uh, they tried to impeach uh, the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, and he lost that vote. Uh, there are even Republicans saying, you know, as much as we had disdain for Nancy Pelosi, she never would have let something like that happen. Uh, any <clears throat> any any perspective about Johnson's future? I mean, that was a big blow, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an embarrassing day um, for Republicans. They, they will all say that. They thought they had the votes. Um you know, Mike Johnson, there were three Republicans that voted against impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Those Republicans argued that uh, the party had not demonstrated that he had committed an impeachable offense. They had not put forward evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors or bribery or treason or any of the things that would normally be impeachable. Um, and so they voted with the Democrats that he should not be impeached. Um, and that put Johnson in a tough situation. He was twisting arms on the House floor and trying to get the votes there. And he thought he had the vote by one and called for the vote, thought he would win by one. And then a, a Democrat who had been in the hospital, Al Green, showed up in his gown and cast the vote to, to force a tie. And that killed the that killed the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, uh Republicans are going to try again, maybe as soon as next week. They're going to pull Steve Scalise, who's been under cancer treatment out of the hospital, and have him vote and hope they're going to try to win by one vote and impeach Mayorkas. Um, but, you know, this a lot of people were saying that Mike Johnson was failing to count votes well, that he was too inexperienced. He should not be um, putting votes on the floor to lose in embarrassing fashion. Uh, Nancy Pelosi would never do that. And some on the far, far right are saying that he already has one or two strikes against him and that if he keeps messing up, uh, they may introduce the motion to vacate to uh, remove him as well. And I think that's actually one reason you saw him oppose the border deal is Marjorie Taylor Greene told him point blank that if he supports this border deal in opposition to Donald Trump, that she would put in the motion to vacate and remove him from his job. And so uh, very much the right wing of the Republican Party is wielding control and influence over the House. Does that threat hold for the work that the Senate's doing this weekend that you mentioned? They are going to come up with, uh, you know, they're going to try to advance uh, another foreign aid bill. This is a standalone bill for Ukraine, Israel. Um, but is that also dead on arrival in the House? 
Well, I think that it would be. I think that the far right would, again, threaten Johnson over that. That said, if it does get out of the Senate, there is probably a coalition of Democrats and national security hawks in among the Republican Party that could pass that bill. Um, but that would require some legislative maneuvering to get it around the speaker. So they could do something called a motion. Um, I, I, I forget the parliamentary name as we're speaking, uh, but there, there's a couple different motions and maneuvers that uh, Democrats could do to um, to put that um, to put that on the floor if it does pass the Senate. But I do think Johnson would probably have to be opposed to it if he wants to keep his job. Luke Broadwater covers Congress for the New York Times. Thank you, sir. Have a good weekend. It'll be busy. Great. Thanks so much. And the midday news wrap will continue after a quick break. Up next, a historic day at the Supreme Court. We'll have analysis of the oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson with Devin Ombres of the Center for American Progress. And speaking of history, 60 years ago today, 73 million American viewers tuned in to The Ed Sullivan Show to hear this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on Monday here on Midday, another installment in our series of conversations with the candidates. Delegate Mike Rogers represents Anne Arundel County in the Maryland General Assembly, and now he's running to represent part of Anne Arundel and Carroll counties and all of Howard County in Congress. He's running in the Democratic primary for the 3rd Congressional District. So that's coming up Monday. And if you've just joined us today, it's the Midday News Wrap. A couple of local news items I want to make sure that you've heard about. The news that just broke within the hour today, Governor Larry Hogan, who was a two-term popular governor here in Maryland, has made a surprise uh, announcement that he is going to run for the U.S. Senate, the seat that is being vacated by the retirement of Ben Cardin. So Governor Larry Hogan, after years, literally, of uh, turning down uh, admonitions that he should run for the Senate, has decided he's, in fact, going to do that. He is expected to file with the Board of Elections by the deadline, which is 9 o'clock this evening. Nick Mosby, whose testimony in the fraud trial of his former wife, Marilyn Mosby, revealed that he was repeatedly untruthful with her and with the public about personal financial matters, has filed with the Board of Elections to run for re-election as Baltimore City Council President. So Mosby is in. And Lamar Jackson has been, as expected, named NFL's most valuable player for the second time. 
Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in an historic case with the 14th Amendment at its core. In Trump v. Anderson, the high court will decide whether or not states can disqualify Donald Trump from being on ballots because of his actions leading up to the insurrection at the Capitol in 2021. Devin Ombrez is the Senior Director of Courts and Legal Policy at Cap Action at the Center for American Progress. He previously served as Senior Counsel to the House Committee on Oversight and Senior Counsel to Congressman Jamie Raskin. He joins us on Zoom from Washington. Hey, Devin, how you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming and, and being part of this conversation. So um, did, uh, in, the, in the arguments that you heard yesterday, uh, did the Supreme Court take much interest in the, the, uh, the discussion about whether or not Donald Trump did engage in insurrection? It seemed to me that that was kind of a, a side issue. What, what's your take? I mean, a side issue, tertiary issue in the back of their minds, maybe. But the couple times that the Colorado advocates tried to bring it up, Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch pretty much quashed it immediately. When some of the liberal justices tried to bring it up, I think that was really important to highlight all of the facts that this was not just a one day event. It was a multi month event using all facets of the government to try and overturn the free and fair elections. Uh, but quite frankly, the court didn't seem to care, which is uh, just uh, it's terrible. It's it was a big issue that needed to be addressed. And the court hunted. Jonathan Mitchell, who was the uh, lawyer for Mr. Trump, began his argument. Uh, he, each of the lawyers was given a couple of minutes to speak uh, unimpeded, uh, contending that the president is not an officer because an officer has to be appointed and uh, the president and the vice president are elected. Uh, how did the, the justices respond to that particular assertion? I mean, they seemed relatively receptive to it. And surprisingly, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson uh, seemed really receptive to it. And she is usually just 100 percent on the ball with regard to Reconstruction era issues and uh, originalist interpretations. And they seem to completely discount the way that the term officer and office was used in the 1860s, the way that the framers of the 14th Amendment intended for it to be used so that it would actually apply to presidents and vice presidents. There was a part of the debate where where that was actually questioned. Why wasn't the president or office of the president specifically enumerated in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? And the floor debate said, because this is all-encompassing, it is included. We are trying to be as absolutely comprehensive as possible. And if we're writing the presidency out of any interpretation of the 14th Amendment, it's virtually pointless. And I think the Supreme Court did uh, a, I I don't want to say a good job because the outcome is awful for American democracy of, of kind of taking that, that route of, of saying that the office of the president is above reproach in any capacity because looking back at the impeachment proceedings, they said, uh, you know, the the prosecution can be used for this. And then in the prosecution, they said, well, the president can only be held accountable through impeachment. So it really plays into Donald Trump's overall defense that he is untouchable. And I think that the Supreme Court did a disservice 
to American democracy and the American people by De not taking that issue to task. Devin Ombrez is the Senior Director of Courts and Legal Policy at the Center for American Progress. So uh, you uh, obviously are quite convinced that uh, this is a clear violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and he should be disqualified. But this is separate and distinct when it comes to being uh, above the law from the immunity case, uh, which was decided by a three-judge panel uh, in the uh, appeals uh, court in the, in the D.C. Circuit. Um, how do you think... This case yesterday that they heard the arguments for, the Colorado case, will play into uh, what their, their future role is going to be deciding the, the issue of presidential immunity. Because in that case, uh, this three-judge panel said, nope, there's no way uh, that presidents are immune uh, the way that Mr. Trump is contending that they are. I always hate to read the tea leaves and try and imagine what the court is going to do, but I honestly think that this was a bit of give with one hand, take away with the other type of situation to a degree because the D.C. Circuit Court's opinion was watertight. It was made to avoid cert, and that's why they took so long writing it. So I think that, you know, I don't I don't want to put it out there in the universe to jinx it, but I think that the Supreme Court could very well say we're going to deny cert because this, the D.C. Circuit was correct in this. And if they do that, things will start moving very quickly, which is a very good thing. Um, but I, I think it was a bit of a give and take and, and trying to say that the court is apolitical. We're keeping an even hand in this by saying that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to Donald Trump, but we're also not going to take up the immunity action and allow the prosecutions to proceed accordingly. But, you know, we've, we've also seen some, uh, some judges like uh, Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida really, really, really slow walking some of the prosecutions. So I don't think Judge Chutkin in D.C. is going to take that tact. She very obviously has not so far, but I, I think it's the court playing political games to a degree. Um, and, you know, Devin, you are an experienced lawyer and legal scholar. I've been called a lot of things in my life. I've never been called a lawyer. And um, so I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But it was interesting to me because a, a fair amount of the discussion seemed to center around this notion of federalism and states' rights almost, that the members of the court seemed to be concerned about individual states like Colorado deciding that he was an insurrectionist and uh, ergo he's not allowed to be on the ballot because that has national implications. What'd you make of that part of the argument that we heard um, I would I would hate to call uh, justices of the Supreme Court abject hypocrites um, because in a lot of other cases, especially the right-wing judges like Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch are incredibly concerned about the state's rights to be able to do anything. But when it comes to voting rights, they are uh, and and the 14th Amendment, they show a far smaller degree of concern in in that regard. But I really think um, that one of the Colorado advocates, I can't remember which one, had a great answer for that. It's that the electors clause of the Constitution in Article 2 allows the states to determine the rules of their federal elections. And the concern that it would create some type of disuniformity, guess what? There's already a mess of uniformity in of, of disuniformity in federal elections state by states whether third parties can be part of the uh can be part of the ballot things of that nature so there's there's already a ton of disuniformity this would have applied 
to Colorado. And the fact that the chief justice was trying to both sides insurrection and say, well, some of the red states could could apply this to Joe Biden or Democrats in future scenarios. I think if they had taken the issue of what is an insurrection and taken it to task and examined the factual scenario that has been part of our American uh, zeitgeist lives nightmare for the past three years, they could have said, this is what an insurrection is, calling for the overturning of a free and fair election, stopping the peaceful transition of power, which had gone unimpeded for nearly 250 years until January 6th, 2021. Yeah, and, and that really is a key issue that they just, they punted. They just decided not to fool with it. Um, and that brings in the whole notion of early in the proceedings, uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, asked about uh, the the self-implementing dimension of this uh, does does Congress uh, is it required for Congress to to make a declaration uh, in order to animate the section three of the 14th Amendment or uh, is it uh, as lawyers say self-implementing what did you make of that line of questioning um, I mean I think that we have we have a panoply of constitutional amendments that have provisions that say Congress may regulate as by law and the 14th Amendment doesn't have it. The other provisions of the 14th Amendment doesn't have it. Section three of the 14th Amendment doesn't have it. What it does indeed have is a provision that allows Congress to remove the disability by two thirds vote. So the Supreme Court could very well determine that insurrection occurred in some capacity, and then it would be the triggering mechanism for Congress to say, no, it doesn't apply to them. Or as we look back to the Reconstruction times, there were laws passed that allowed people who were part of the Confederacy to be pardoned and permit them to run for office. And and Congress has the ability to say, no, this is not an insurrection. Um, and I think the the Colorado advocates were really good in saying, you know, there are ways that the courts can deal with this. You guys can set the standard. The Supreme Court can set the standard as to what constitutes insurrection because we have statutory guidance, we have factual guidance. You guys say what the law is. And not doing that and allowing the fear that Texas is going to remove Biden from the uh, ballot on hopped up pretenses or is, is, what the court is supposed to do. They're supposed to say, we are the ones who decide what the law is. We are able to quickly expedite these cases. We are able to determine what is and is not indeed not an insurrection. And they didn't do it. They, they like, like you said, like I said, like everybody else said, they punted and it sets the table for more upheaval and more potentials for violence. We saw Lee Stefanik who is a uh, you know in the running to be Trump's VP candidate? Say, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have certified the election in 2020 if I was the if I was the vice president at the time. So it's really it's really doing a disservice to democracy, and it's setting up for a lot more upheaval in the future. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, to my knowledge, has actually never decided a case uh, invoking Section Three of the Fourteenth. Amendment. So this was a, an historic occasion, if nothing else, yesterday. There have been uh, eight or so public officials who've been 
uh, adjudicated by Congress and, and disqualified. There was a case in New Mexico, the Supreme Court there uh, upheld a lower court's ruling to remove a person from the ballot who had been uh, convicted January 6th rioter. He's, he's now you know, uh, disallowed from holding public office. Uh, but the, and that particular case wasn't appealed to the Supreme Court. I wonder if there's a case, if this this uh, decision comes the way everybody thinks it's going to, which is uh, in favor of Mr. Trump staying on the ballot, whether cases like that could, could in fact be uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, do you think it could change, change the landscape, you know, for down ballot races as well? Um, I think I think the way the court took it in doing state by state and trying to differentiate the way that a federal election official would be treated versus a state election official, I don't think um, that it changes the nature of how that would be affected uh, if states are trying to preclude um, folks who've been convicted for their role in January 6th from serving as officers. Um, what I think is interesting, I, I, I think the, the question that's yet to be determined, however, is whether it would apply to members of Congress, because Jacob Chansey, the uh, the uh, QAnon shaman, uh, that gentleman, I think, keeps making noises about making congressional runs. And he's been convicted of being engaged in the effort to overthrow the 2020 election. Um, and I think that that is if if somebody tries to keep him off the ballot there. I think that's certainly something that could rise to the Supreme Court at that time. And and God forbid they say it's going to be up to the houses of Congress, the House and the Senate, to decide whether to seat or not to seat that, pe- that person. Um, and I want to kind of extrapolate a little bit out, because if you look at the Jack Smith um, uh, allegations and charges in D.C., uh, the former president was not charged with insurrection. He was not charged with incitement to insurrection. Uh, those those charges have not been used in over 100 years. I want to say almost 140 years. Um, and so I think that was a charging decision. But if he is if he is indeed convicted of these things in the in 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 Washington D.C. for his role in fomenting violence on January 6th, but he's not charged or convicted of insurrection, what does that mean? Does yeah. that mean that he can still be on the ballot even though? He was found guilty of attempting to overthrow free and fair democracy in the United States. It's possible. It yeah. is entirely possible because the Supreme Court punted yesterday. Yeah, and possible that not only could he be on the ballot, but that he could serve as president. Um, Correct. And you know, Correct. and there's even there's there's language in the, the amendment that says you cannot hold office if you've mm-hmm. engaged in an insurrection. It doesn't say anything about running for office. There are people who bring up that distinction, and that's a whole other semantic conversation that we don't have time to pursue. But just very quickly, um, what's your guess on the vote on this? Is is, uh, is this going to be a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court in favor of uh, allowing Mr. Trump on the ballot? I think it could. I, I, I don't know that it's going to be unanimous. I think it could be 8-1, but um, I think that you could see uh, you could see a, a very lopsided decision, and I think you could see a couple of concurring opinions. Depend, I don't know who's going to join them, but coming from maybe uh, Thomas and Gorsuch on various components, uh, outlining their thoughts on mm-hmm. application of the Fourteenth Amendment. But either way, just really not not a great day for democracy yesterday. Devin Ombres is the senior director of courts and legal policy at Cap Action at the Center for American Progress. Thanks so much, Devin. I'm really grateful. 
Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Up next, our weekly theater review, Jay Wynn Russick, joins me to talk about crumbs from the table of joy at the Everyman Theater here in Baltimore. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR.